youngsters from Liverpool, England. The Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. Hello and welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. Today I'm joined by a fantastic author, James Campion, who just released a brand new book titled Take a Sad Song, The Emotional Currency of Hey Jude. In the book, James walks us through the background and the lyrics of the song Hey Jude, the relationships between the Beatles, the foreshadowing, the pinnacle of their unity, and describes it all in such a way you just won't want to put the book down. This book is honestly one of my favorites that I've read about the Beatles, and it offers a great insight not just to the song, but to where the Beatles were in 1968 as individuals. To quote Rob Sheffield's review of this book, you won't want the book to end, but like Hey Jude, it lingers in your mind long after the music stops. So let's get into this interview and find out about the book. James, thank you so much for coming on the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. It's great to be on with you, Jack. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. So you have this brand new book, this fascinating book that was just released. Uh, it's called Take a Sad Song, The Emotional Currency of Hey Jude. I want to dive into your book. I have a lot of questions I want to ask you. But first, let's start with how you first got into the Beatles. Oh, boy. Wow. Right out of the gate. Good question. So I, I, I don't know if I've told this story on other, uh, with other interviewers, but my first introduction to the Beatles, besides, you know, the normal stuff, when you're a kid, you know, I grew up in the 60s, so we had the Beatles cartoon. The Beatles were, of course, on the radio, so it always seemed like we always knew, I want to hold your hand, and she loves you. And, oh, you yeah. know, uh, when I became really musically aware, we, we moved from the Bronx, New York, to Freehold, New Jersey in 1972, and I, I got my first AM radio, so I was listening to everything. And, of course, they'd always pepper Beatles songs in there. And I remember asking my parents in 1973 for the Blue album. The Blue and Red albums came out. I think I was going to be 11. I was 10 that summer. We just moved to Jersey, so I, I was like in the middle of nowhere. I had no friends or anything. So I was really digging on music, learning new stuff. And, but my parents, for some reason, got me the Red album, hmm. which at first I was disappointed because I liked those later Beatles songs. Right. But... That was the right thing because my education starts with love me do right off the bat and from me to you and, and I love her and I want to hold your hand and she loves you. So I kind of got introduced to the way kids would have got introduced to the Beatles in the early 60s here in America. And um, so, yeah, that's my first introduction to the Beatles. I do remember hearing Sgt. Pepper's for the first time in high school in its entirety WPLJ or WNEW Radio here in New York played it in its entirety at midnight, I believe on its release day, which was what, July 1st or something, or 2nd, 1967, in 1977. So that was kind of cool for me. I felt like I was being introduced into this club. And from then on, I was always a Beatle fanatic, started buying the records, making sure that they were in the original Capitol or the original EMI or the original Apple labels. And, you know, they were sort of the beginning of my love of, of record collecting and everything else. I think that's great. I mean, what better way to start listening to the Beatles than at their beginning? And this way you can grow with them and, and discover mm. music as they discovered it. it. Now, is that the first time that you heard Hey Jude when you were listening to the Red and Blue albums? So I heard the, the thing I remember the most, and I've told the story a few times, and it's in the book, 
is the na 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 na. I I remember singing that to myself when I was five, six years old to help me get to sleep after I had like a nightmare in the middle of the night, you know, when you're a kid. And it used to comfort me just singing that over and over again. I don't know where I could have heard this, Jack, because I, I didn't know who the Beatles were. Maybe I heard it coming out of the radio across the street. Maybe I heard it in my dad's car. Maybe I, 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 I don't know when I would have heard it, but I did. So I didn't know who the Beatles were. I don't know who Paul McCartney was. I didn't know what Hey Jude was. I just remember that. Right. And that always stuck with me and always fascinated me. So years later, when I saw Paul McCartney in 89 play at the Garden and the whole room was singing it, it all flushed back to me. And I'm like, oh, this is what I love about this song. This is probably my introduction to the magic of the Beatles. And it gave me chills. And I did have this emotional reaction. And that's really why I came up with the the subtitle, The Emotional Currency of Hey Jude. It keeps paying me off over the years. It comes back. And I use this, these terms, as you know, because you read the book, the comfort and unity of the song. The comfort part is the Hey Jude, take a sad song and make it better. You know, don't carry that pain. To the na-na, we're all singing it together. So my introduction to Hey Jude was backwards. I heard the na-na's part first. <laughs> and then later on, I couldn't tell you when I heard probably on AM radio in the early 70s or somewhere along the line, I heard the whole song. And then when those na-na's came in, I'm like, Oh, I got the chills again. So that's sort of like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's sort of a, a sonic touch tone or a sense memory, a very visceral sense memory of music and the feeling of being frightened and then comforted by music, which I think Paul intended. I really do. What was it about the Beatles specifically that captivated you as a fan? Um, I just want to go on the record as saying in the grand argument of the Stones Beatles, I'm a Stones guy. I have really? to say, mea culpa, I am. So funny, my friend Chris Barrera, who I grew up with, he used to play every Beatles song on acoustic guitar, and I was always amazed at that. He had all the Beatles books, loved the Beatles, was fascinated. He would send me all these tapes about, like, Paul is dead, or, you know, the Maharishi. And uh, I was the Stones guy, but he's like, why would you write the Beatles book? And I said, well, I didn't really want to write a Beatles book. I wanted to write this emotional currency, this connection I have with Hey Jude, but I also can't leave out the fact that the power and the majesty of the brilliance of the Beatles is all over it. And I really have said this many times, Jack. I, it's a, the, That song is the culmination of everything the Beatles do well. Musically, lyrically, influence, iconocry, spiritually, just the whole 1960s edict, the Beatles sort of utopian feel, the... Just the whole generation that they built. And it's all in that song for me. Um, But to answer your question more directly, I think the Beatles have always been on a grander scale than any other music story. And I've gotten to know many, many great Beatle authors through writing this book and writers over the years writing other books about music and just through my travels as a music journalist. And we all we all discuss that great Beatle arc and story, you know? It, each era has its own story and its own kind of personalities and how quickly the Beatles changed from week to week and month to month and how much they jammed in right. from 1962 and their recording uh, history to 1969 and, and their actual history from 58 to, to 70. Um, so the Beatles are just different. And for a writer... It's just the best pool. It's a deep, deep pool to swim in. And, and to me, everybody always jokes, why Hey Jude? Why, why one song? 
Hey Jude has so many subtexts and so many layers. And I learned all about them discussing it with professors of sociology and philosophy and psychology and musicology and, and, uh, and Beatle experts and authors and songwriters. And as you know, Jack, it, it just all came flourishing out. And I hope it's in the book because it really does speak to the, as I said before, the power and majesty of this, of this thing called the Beatles. Oh, it's definitely in the book. It's all over it. Um, what was the decision process like for you? Um, when did you decide, okay, I'm going to write a book about an entire song? Um, I, I would say both. You know, a, a book, I say this all the time and I mean it, a book eventually reveals itself to you. So you're in the writing process when you realize, okay, it's a book now. First, it's just a project. It's a writing project you're doing. You're doing the interviews, you're, you're collecting the data, you're reading the biographies, you're, you're making sure you have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. And then you start to work the book out. And then you start to think about the reader. How's the reader going to enjoy this and get the same joy and feelings that I have from Hey Jude or the Beatles or the era? Um, but with this particular project, it really was almost necessity. I'm working on a book with Adam Duritz, who I did a podcast with for a couple of years until the pandemic. He's the lead singer and main songwriter for Counting Crows. And um, because Adam is a, a songwriter and a rock star, he doesn't really have a lot of time to work through the book. So I wrote the original book idea, which was a series of interviews he and I did in 2017 into 2018. And he was building on that. So while he was doing it, I had put out my previous book in 2016 or 20, uh, was it 2017 or 20, somewhere around there. 2017 uh, was my last book on Warren Zevon, Accidentally Like a Martyr, The Tortured Art of Warren Zevon. You know Warren's work, uh, singer song? Oh, yeah. Warren Zevon? I love Warren Zevon. Great. I hope you read that book because I think you'll dig it. And I love when 20 somethings tell me that because it warms <laughs> my heart. But um, yeah, and so. I had this space of time where I wasn't writing. I was just waiting for Adam to go through my wor- the transcripts and writing. And I had this idea to do a short kind of thing. And I thought, well, why don't I concentrate on one song? I did a series of songs with Warren. Let me do one song. And I, and I, I, I engulfed over that summer, I think of 2018 into 2019, into the winter, all these books about one song. And there's eight or nine of them. I will be the 10th, I believe. Uh, and... I did it to get inspired, but also not to repeat, to go about it my own way. And I felt if I knew what they did, I would do it my way. So that is a a longer way to explain to you that it was really a professional, artistic, or creative necessity. But also it was, once I got into it, then I realized that it was a story I had to tell. It was a story of my childhood. It was a story about the love of, of my wife, seeing my wife tear up when she saw a bunch of people singing Hey Jude on TV. Um, It was a story of all my songwriter friends who all are so learned and so excited about the craft. And who's written more popular, fantastic, lasting songs in the pop idiom in the last 50, 60 years than Paul McCartney? I would say no one, no one. So it was perfect. It was the perfect song for me. And it was the perfect guy. And and one last thing, and I and I I urge you, maybe I'll send you the link, but I urge all your listeners. I wrote this piece for the Dog Door Cultural in 2019. Um, it's now called the Pittsburgher, about Over the Rainbow, which is my favorite song of all time from The Wizard of Oz. And it's a 5,000-word piece, and it took me about three months to write it. And studying that song and breaking it down and 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 reading about the period in which it was popular, the Great Depression here in America, 
and what movies meant and what color movies meant, because that movie, as you know, goes from sepia tone to color and, and at that time was shocking for audiences, and how ahead of its time that was with special effects. And it was an adult movie, but it was a kid's movie, and that song is just so gorgeous, and Judy Garland just kills me every time she sings it. And that's really, and I thought about it, I think that's what really Hey Jude did to me too as a kid. So I thought, hey, there must be a book in here. And, and I was right, there is a book in there. Wow. You know, in your book, you talk a lot about what was going on in the world at the time when this song came out. Can you tell us why that's so important to consider? I think timing is everything. Mm-hmm. A Beatles coming here in February of 64, just a few months after the, uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, is really the story of the Beatles, isn't it? Uh, they also quelled uh, a controversy in England a couple of months before in 1963 where they just knocked all these bad stories off the front pages and it was Beatlemania and Beatle haircuts and Beatle boots and Beatle harmonies. And when they came here, it was all about timing. You know, they, they, they reawoke rock and roll here in America. That kind of died off when Chuck Berry got arrested and Jerry Lee Lewis married his 13-year-old cousin and Elvis went in the army and Buddy Holly died and Little Richard became a preacher. And Timing, 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 timing. And, you know, the timing of the Beatles opening up the world combining folk and, and, and rock and roll music with Bob Dylan in 65, and then breaking through the wall of psychedelics and spirituality in 66 and using the sitar and using string arrangements and gorgeous sort of ways of structuring songs that had never been done before, really, in pop music. Maybe Phil Spector, somewhat Brian Wilson, but the Beatles were really breaking new ground. Again, timing, timing. 1967, in the middle of the summer of love, they change their facial hair. They change their haircuts. They, they become this thing, Sgt. Peppers. 68, everybody's stripping it back down, getting away from the psychedelics, right? And the Beatles are doing that too. They go, to the, they go to India with the Maharishi and they play their acoustic guitars and they come back with the White Album material. And in the middle of 1968, this movement, this baby boomer movement that the Beatles captured more than anybody else starts to fracture. This all-for-one, one-for-all, civil rights, women rights, don't trust anybody over 30, drugs, free sex and love, no more judgment, you know, peace and love. It's starting to fall apart now. You know, the left is fighting with each other. The right is building up against it. Uh, the Black Panthers are building out of the, the, the civil rights movement. You've got the weather underground, underground building out of the, 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 you know, the anti-war movement. We have the assassination of Martin Luther King, the... The, the paragon of the civil rights movement. Assassination, again, of another Kennedy brother, Robert Kennedy. You know, the youth candidate in 68. More people are coming home dead in Vietnam in 1968. There's riots in the streets in Columbia University and, 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 and in the streets of Detroit. There's riots in Paris. There's riots in, in, in London. Russia invades Czechoslovakia after Czechoslovakia's peace spring and, and, and opening up their free speech. I mean, the world's on fire. It's the worst year after the Civil War here in America. And you know, when I was writing this book, Jack, in 2020, everybody was going, this is the worst year since 68. This is the worst year since 68. And so it all came flooding back to me. So I I dedicated an entire chapter, as you know, and you read a little bit there at the beginning of it, to the import of what was going on in the world. Because the Beatles reflected that world. They were leaders, but as John Lennon said, we were also on top of the mast and we followed the winds. We followed the zeitgeist in the world. Right. And as Paul said, we talk to our audience. You know, from me to you, I want to hold your hand. You know what I mean? Uh, 
you know, uh, thank you, girl. Like all these songs, they were they were writing to their audience. So in a way, Jude, the mythical Jude, is the generation that Paul's talking to. You know, when Paul looks into the camera for that famous uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg video that I talked to Michael about for the chapter of that video, and it's played on the Smothers Brothers show in the fall of '68, right after the riots in De- in Detroit, or excuse me, I'm sorry, in Chicago, uh, the Democratic Convention. You know, Paul looks right into the camera and he sings this, Hey Jude, take a sad song, make it better. I think, as many of the writers said to me, that was seven minutes of real exhale for the world and for certainly here in America. And I'm not saying that Hey Jude or any song can save us from our racism or war or man's inhumanity to man, but I think Paul McCartney, and I talk about it a lot in the book, as you know, his sense of empathy for mankind and humans in general uh, for all races and creeds, and especially women, comes really through in this song. And I think it was a song that was needed, and it was a song that came through. And of course, the Beatles are the ones that had to do it, because when they made a statement, everybody listened. And they listened that summer. Number one song of the year was more number one at, uh, more weeks at number one, nine weeks, than any other Beatles song. I was surprised to learn writing it. 19 weeks at, on the charts. 19 countries it was number one. If anything, Hey Jude was a gift from the Beatles to the world because of where we were in 1968. Yeah. Right. So it's all about unity here. Yeah. It and really is. not just unity within the world, but unity within the Beatles themselves. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah. Well, where were the Beatles in 68? They had plateaued a little bit. Even Beatle fans would have to admit that. You know, it was up, 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 up from 62, 63, 64, 65, breaking molds, you know, screaming fans. And they go off the road and they make these incredible albums that influence everybody. And then Sgt. Pepper's just becomes the thing for the entire summer of 67. And then, you know, their, their manager, Brian Epstein, dies. And John kind of retreats into himself with LSD and... Everybody gets married except for Paul, and they move out to the suburbs, and Ringo's doing some movies, and George is deeply into transcendental meditation, and the whole thing with the Maharishi happens that winter. And then the real cataclysm happens. John meets Yoko. Ooh, that's the biggie. Don't worry. Whatever you want to put on it, that's a biggie. Uh, Paul falls in love with Linda. That's a biggie, because for years he's been a bachelor. Yeah, he's engaged to Jane Asher, and he's living with her, and he's... He's hanging with her, and they're going on premieres and everything, but she's her own woman. She's an actress, and Paul never agrees to actually bury, you know, bury this thing, and he falls in love with Linda, and uh, the Beatles are, are at this point where they need to be brought back together. You know, in Peter Jackson's Get Back, which I think is brilliant, and he actually talks about how important Hey Jude was to get us to the Get Back sessions in his little seven-minute intro to that six-hour film six part, whatever it was. And that's very true. Paul bringing this song in and John just adoring it to the day he died, said it was Paul's greatest song, was a big deal. And one of the, I think it was Devin McKinney, the great writer of Magic Circles, a brilliant book about the Beatles, who told me in my book, think about it for a minute. This is the last single the Beatles will record, all four of them, specifically for a single in their career. The Beatles start with that in Love Me Do, and here we are, because I know that there's going to be a single called The Ballad of John and Yoko, but that's just Paul and John, as we know now. And I know there'll be singles like Let It Be and Something and and uh, 
come together, but they're album tracks. We know for years the Beatles just had Eight Days a Week and Day Tripper, and these were all just singles, uh, you know, uh, uh, Paperback Writer. So they go in to record this single, and it's them again. It's them back in 62 with George Martin making one song together, and they're singing it together, and no one dares stop them singing those na-nas. And George Martin goes, we can't put this out, and John stands up in the studio and he goes, they will because it's us. So that power, that ego, that arrogance of the Beatles that we all love came out with Hey Jude. And I think, and many writers echo this, it's the last, in my estimate, great final statement as a single from a monumental singles band that the Beatles will ever give us. And it, it to me, it stands as, when I hear it, I hear the final days of their unity. Um, Ringo will leave the band for a short time. George, as we know, will walk out in a couple of months. John will say he wants a divorce. Alan Klein will get involved and start breaking up the Apple enterprise. Paul will sue them. And really, they're making great music with Abbey Road, but they're not the same four-headed monster as Mick Jagger always called them. They were, they were now in different spots. So the Beatles were at the brink. And I think Hey Jude, for a moment brings them back together. The session brings them back together. The rehearsals bring them back together. And that wonderful Michael Lindsay Hogg video brings them back together, I think. I don't know what you think, Jack, but to me, it's that seminal moment in the Beatles where we just about are tipping over and now we're going to go on the descent to 1970. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And without even having any knowledge of the Beatles, the first time you hear Hey Jude, you kind of just feel that brotherhood between the people singing and you feel included in that. Yep. And it's just the kind of thing that you can't write about, you know, until you come along, obviously. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. So what was your favorite part about writing this book? The interviews. It's always the interviews. I love the research. I love the creative writing. I enjoyed writing, describing the song Hey Jude stanza by stanza, note by note, that opens the book. And thanks to my publisher and my editors, best copy editors I've ever had, who said, you have to open this book with that. It's creative. It grabs you. If you don't know the song, and I don't know what human doesn't, you know, it gets you in it. And then my introduction, talking about the import, and then the first chapter, which talks about all the records the song broke and all the awards it's won and all the lists it's on. But it's always the interviews, man. It's always sitting down with the great Rob Sheffield or talk to Grail Marcus off record or Tim Riley, one of the great Beatles scholars, uh, talking to all those really brilliant professors, none of them I had ever met before. I, I, I reached out to dozens of them, and the ones that said, okay, I'll give this a shot, I said, let's do it. Let's sit down. I'm going to throw some things at you. Tell me the sociological impact of Hey Jude. Tell me the psychological impact of song and what it does to us, what it does to us physically, what it does to us mentally. Tell me about the philosophy behind this. And then talking to all songwriters of different generations, and them just sitting in awe of Paul and what they pulled out of it. When when a, a brilliant young songwriter and a good friend of mine, Kylie Lotz, who goes by pedal. And it was great giving, getting a woman's perspective. When she says to me, you know what I hear when I hear let it out and let it in? I hear breathing. Paul's telling us to just breathe. It's a mantra. It's what you do in yoga. It's what they tell you to do when you're having an anxiety attack, right? That's what they tell you to do if there's a trauma or you're, you just had a car accident. Breathe, just breathe. And, and Paul is saying that, you know? Uh, 
And and that's why I, I titled the chapter about the brief history of the Beatles, Let It Out and Let It In, because in many ways the Beatles did that for an entire generation. They, as George Harrison said so brilliantly, we we gave the world a reason to go crazy and they took it. Mm, yeah. And let it out. They're letting out this beautiful music, these wonderful personalities and humor, senses of humor and haircuts and suits. And and they're also getting Beatlemania back. And that's why the Beatles quit, by the way. In my estimation, they quit because Beatlemania became too much because they did let it in. They they did absorb the energy and the passion of the world. Because all of these guys, specifically John and Paul, because they lost their moms at a young age, and John really had no family life. He lost his father, too, who left him at a young age. Ringo almost died probably a half a dozen times before he was the age of five. And George was sort of a wayward kid. You know, these, these kids are working-class Liverpudlians who were happy just for anyone to pay attention to them for 10 seconds. Yeah. And they absolutely mesmerized the world. So they took it all in. So it was really doing the interviews, Jack. It was just sitting with these people and getting them to talk to me about one of my favorite songs of all time. Not just Beatles songs, but songs of all time. I got to say, one of my favorite lyrics of all time is in the song Hey Jude. It's, for oh. well you know that it's a fool who plays it cool by making his world a little colder. I think that's one of the most... You know, the, the best piece of advice you could give someone. So true. Do you know anything about that line? Can you tell us anything about that lyric? Yeah. You know what's so great about that line? My friend Adam Duritz, who is one of the most emotional songwriters ever, he said to me, it's the vulnerability that Paul's talking about. He's not talking about something you give. He's not talking about something you get. He's talking about prepare yourself for hurt, for love, for joy, for pain, for whatever. Because if you don't make yourself vulnerable, you're not going to feel anything. And a lot of songwriters also talked about that, about the idea of cut the macho crap, cut the posturing. And what were the Beatles? I just talked about how much they had to put on armor because they were getting so much love and so much adoration. And they be, those four guys are the only people on the planet who know what that was like. And so they had to put up armor. They put up characters. You know, when Bob Spitz wrote his brilliant biography in the early aughts, I think it was, or maybe late 90s, in his introduction, I think he says, you know, when I talked to Paul about this, Paul said, you know, a lot of those interviews that people quote in all these Beatle biographies, that was like Mal Evans getting on the phone and being John because we didn't want to be bothered. We were like just trying to protect ourselves from being over, you know, interviewed and over. And so nobody knew. And Paul admits, and he's the king of this, we, we told these stories so many times, it seemed to be true. What is the truth? So... They were putting these masks on. I mean, they quite literally and viscerally put on costumes and became something else with Sgt. Peppers. Right. You know, John sings, I am the walrus. You know, they are becoming, they can't take it anymore. They become so big, they, they don't, they're not human anymore. They're not people. So Paul is saying, that's not right. You, 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 the more you put up those barriers, your world becomes colder. And I think he's also talking to his chums because they stopped being those lovable lads that grew up way too fast in Hamburg and had to play all those sweaty afternoon gigs at the Cavern and, and all looked at each other with mesmerized faces when they went on that stage at the Ed Sullivan Theater in February of 64 and they couldn't even believe what was happening to them. You could see it in their faces. Have you ever seen the Maisels Brothers What's Happening documentary? I think it's called The Beatles in the USA now. No, I've never seen, seen that. Okay, you must. 
It's a black and white film done by the Maisels brothers, who are most mostly famous for a film called Gimme Shelter about the tragedy at Altamont, oh, yeah. Rolling Stones. That was one of their first music films. In fact, it might have been. They were hired on the spot, and they were at JFK Airport, which, by the way, was just named JFK because he was just murdered. Right. <laughs> and here come the Beatles through there uh, to America for the first time. And he follows them on their train ride down to D.C. and that entire first two weeks all the way to Miami where they meet you know, Muhammad Ali and they do the, the Ed Sullivan show for the second time. You have to see that film. See the Beatles. In fact... When they wrote the script for Hard Day's Night, they based it on that film. You could see the absolute shock and joy and just surprise that the Beatles are having about what the heck is going on. So they put up that that shield. And Paul is saying here in 1968, he's a little wiser. The Beatles might be a little colder. And he's saying, okay, we have to stop this now. And you know what I'm reminded of too, Jack, real quick? Yeah. In Get Back, which I'm sure you saw. Yes. Oh, yeah. There's that wonderful scene in which John and Paul are having a, as they say in England, taking the piss out of uh, the Maharishi and the way they were acting in front of him. Remember, yeah. Oh, Paul's like, remember how hushed and revered we were in our face? Like and then boys. John would do, yeah. And George is right, the great shot, and George is right in the middle, and he's not laughing, and he's not reacting. And finally he says, hey, hey, maybe that was your real, f- and this thing you're doing now is your mask. Yeah. Maybe this is your phony face. This tough guy, schoolboy, live a Putlian, um, you know, I don't want to give of myself. I'm too tough. I'm too cool to be duped by, by a religion or spirituality. And that really stuck with me. But I feel, you know, Paul, I think it was the quote, the heart goes to a warmer place that Paul mentions and many years from now that I quote in the book, the great Barry Miles biography of Paul that he was, um, that he was part of. The heart goes to a warmer place. That stuck with Paul. And Paul was very dismissive of the Maharishi, but when he got back, he says he still to this day does a lot. He does the mantra and he does uh, trans- he does meditation. And that kept coming back to Paul. And it kept coming back to me writing the book. The heart goes to the warmer place. The heart goes to the warmer place. So warmer versus colder. Yeah, I think that's what that line means. So James, after writing this book, what's your favorite memory associated with the Beatles? Another really good question. When I was in uh, high school, we were really playing a lot of Beatles stuff. And Beatlemania was really big on Broadway. I never saw it. And we had this exchange student say with my friend, Mitchell, Francisco Ignazio. I think he still kind of follows me on Facebook, so I hope he hears this. We called him JoJo. It was his nickname. So he loved Get Back, you know. Whenever we'd say, Get Back, JoJo, and he would dance around we, we were totally and he would always walk around going someone come see Beatlemania with me and we I don't know if we ever did maybe he went with someone else but I have this really fond memory of listening to the Beatles with him and had the joy on his face because he was hearing it for the first time at 17 18 years old um, that's a fond memory I also remember vividly seeing Let It Be for the first time at a midnight show in like 78 79 and all my friends were appalled. They were like, this sucks. I thought the Beatles were great. They're ham-fisting these songs, and they don't sound like they know what they're doing, and they're arguing with each other. And I just thought, holy crap, this is cool. I remember when I read the Elvis biography by um, Albert Goldman. It was on the cover of Rolling Stone in 82 when it came out, and they had an excerpt. 
and I was immediately intrigued, and I bought the book, and I I never was an Elvis fan. After I read the book, I loved Elvis, and all the Elvis fans hated it. Absolutely hated it. And Albert Goldman would go on to write The Lives of John Lennon, and all the Lennon fans hated it. I think Paul and Linda burned the book or something. And um, But it humanized Elvis for me. Elvis was like a plush black and white painting or some guy in a jumpsuit. I didn't realize the impact and gorgeous rebellion of Elvis until I read that book. And that's the way I, I, I felt seeing Let It Be. You know, the Beatles became musicians, not just two-dimensional characters to me. You know, they made mistakes and they worked out songs and I was eminently interesting, which is why Get Back for me seeing it this past November was like, yeah, because for years I was looking for all those bootlegs, you know, of all the extra takes because I wanted to see more and more of that. I want to see even more. I hope they put a Blu-ray out with 20 hours. I don't even care. I, I hope just so, love too. I yeah. love that. Yeah. So is Paul your favorite Beatle? Now he is. Now he is. After Get Back or after the book? After the book. Yeah. I, I don't know how you spend... I made this joke many times. Uh, I, I know a lot of writers who will write ghostwrite with people they don't even like. Or they will take an assignment to write about something they're not passionate about. And I don't begrudge them that. It's very hard being a writer. I have to supplement my income with other gigs and stuff, full-time gig. But I have to adore the subject. I have to totally, and when you're swimming in it, even with Warren Zevon, a tough subject. Warren was a very tough man. He was a deeply flawed, psychologically tortured, an extremely bad alcoholic, had, uh, you know, terrible bouts with misogyny and um, ego beyond the pale. So that was tough living in that. And then, of course, he, he gets... When he finally gets his life together, he contracts cancer and he's dying. And it's just, it was a really tough write for me to be in that world. Loved it. Love Warren. I'm glad I wrote that book. But it was really dark and tough. This one in 2020 when we were all stuck at home and we couldn't go anywhere, couldn't see anyone, go to concerts. And it was scary. If I get this thing, am I going to die? Am I going to have a, a lung disease? Am I going to lose my taste? Or whatever we were going through. Or is my parents going to be all right? Or, or my mom, I should say, because my father died in 2019. He missed it. Uh, but um, I think for me, it was always a labor of love. It was always something that I I enjoyed being inside of. And Paul was a big part of that. Studying Paul, reading all his biographies, talking to all his biographers. Paul, I know he's flawed. I know he could come off as phony. I know he tends to be a little repetitive, and I know people are inundated with Paul, you know, all the time. But for years, I was a Lennon guy, and Paul just comes through in this book, and to me, as a really genuine cat who had true empathy and care and, and is a true craftsman, and I respect the hell out of him. And I just think his song is so beautiful, and I just think it reflects him. And it affects his band and his times. And um, so I'll have to say Paul McCartney. Do you have your favorite? Yeah. It, I mean, it really depends which day it is. Uh, recently, it's been revolving between Paul and George. But I've always loved John as well and Ringo. It's, yeah. So ah. it's always constantly changing for me. Yeah. So I see you got a Dylan poster back there. You also have a yes. Be- great Beatles shot from 68. Um, yes. So... Are the Beatles unquestionably? Obviously, I mean, you do Beatles Earth, but I wonder if you're if you if you did that out of just fun, and then all of a sudden it just took off. And would you is what would you put rank? Who's two and three after the Beatles? If the Beatles is still number one for you, 
Oh yeah, so the Beatles are always number one for me, including their solo careers. After them, it, it has to be Dylan. Mm-hmm. Dylan, the Grateful Dead, Beach Boys, the band, the know. Eagles, Joni Mitchell, the Ronettes, all of the good old music. But as far as more contemporary musicians, John Mayer, Jack Johnson, Taylor Swift, the Avid mm-hmm. Brothers, Camp, Phoebe Bridgers. Okay, you know, somebody from... A generation in which you might have heard when you were a kid growing up or even now. Like, So I'm wondering, because you have an old soul, do you have your parents around my age or a little older? Do you have older brothers and sisters? Is that how you got introduced to this music? Or Yeah, my parents introduced me to the Beatles. Uh, they always used to play them for me when I was younger. But then when I was around like 12 years old, I kind of really dove in headfirst myself right. with the advent of YouTube and just like their music videos being online. That's when mm-hmm. I kind of became a Beatle maniac myself and that's when i kind of took the reins Uh but really they've kind of always just been there in my life sure yeah although a lot of people say that in my book it's like a song that's always been there yeah yeah i mean i'd be i'd be very curious to see what your parents thought of my book because they might remember more of that stuff actually happening than than you do you know what i mean (laughs) well it turns out this is going to be their summer reading assignment so i will i will let you know what they say about it excellent like to see it yeah I, i often tell people i know this will probably come out after father's day but that's that's the kind of thing I like to get for Father's Day. Give me a nice book to read about something that I, I really dig. It was tough to, I will say this, it was tough to try to bite off that, you know, that that huge, giant, intimidating thing that is the Beatles. Um, I remember somebody saying that now that Mark Lewison's doing the definitive giant volumes like the Oxford Dictionary uh, of the Beatles history that, you know, doing a full biography of the Beatles itself with the, you know, the with the Norman book and the, and the Spitz book out there and so many books that, you know, take a small portion. I you know I, I reviewed books about Rubber Soul and about the Beatles on the Roof and the and the Beatles, uh, the Womax book, fantastic book uh, about Solid State, about Abbey Road, um, that I took a small portion of it. But it is tough. I, I was asked many times during my Warren Zevon book tour, why Warren Zevon? And I would always make the joke, because there's enough Beatle books. <laughs> and uh, apparently there needed to be one more Beatle book. So... <laughs> Well, there are a lot of Beatles books. There are some Beatles movies, but in my opinion, it's extremely hard for any of them to to accurately portray anything about the Beatles because of how complex they were. But I really think you captured lightning in a bottle here with your book. Thank you. Excuse me. Thank you, Jack. I really appreciate that, especially as I said to you before we taped, uh, from a younger fan, from the next generation, because as Rob Sheffield says in my book, the Beatles didn't happen, they're happening. Yes. And I really do, you know, there's so many eras where they, they they came back in the 90s when they released, you know, the anthology and then they came back again when they got on Apple and then they, the, you know, the Apple Music and then they came back again with this Get Back. It just keeps going and these these great releases they have. You know, it's funny you mentioned about that, about, you know, the Beatles, you can't depict them in a biopic. I've always said they'd never be able to do like a good Muhammad Ali one or Babe Ruth. These people were bigger than life, you know, it's yeah. hard to capture them. And my, I have to give my friend Peter Blazevic, I, I often want to quote this, and I always get it wrong, but I think I'm going to get it right. He says, the Beatles are in that great triumvirate. Uh, things that have never were and never will be again, that you can't, that, you know, are completely unique, and that is Shakespeare, Babe Ruth, and the Beatles. He always says that, and he puts them in there. I always throw Mozart in there, uh, or sometimes I'll try to give him something else, and I'm like, what about, you know, and he's like, no, and then he'll argue it. But it, it's very true. There's certain things that you just can't, um, replicate. You know, when people think of a four-piece band, they think mostly they think of the Beatles, no matter what era. Um, so yeah, 
Yeah, the, the, the traditional two guitars, bass, drums. Here we go. Yeah. You know? If Hey Jude was on a Beatles album, which album do you think it would feel most at home on? Oh, wow. That is a friggin' great question. I love you and hate you for it. <laughs> Equally. I had to um, ask it. <laughs> what the what? No one has asked me that. Well, first of all, someone did ask me, would it be okay? I think my editor... Uh, in a long-form interview that's coming out soon, I've been uh, sharing snippets of it on, on my social media. Uh, uh, Deborah Kate Schaefer is my uh, managing editor at the Aquarian Weekly, and she asked me, would Hey Jude have been as impactful if it was stuck in the White Album? Because it's so, you know, it's just so dense, mm. that album. And I said, no, absolutely not. It's a single. It was meant to be a single. You can't just jam it in. It's a thing of, of its own, right? It's of its right. own making. Um, I often say that about the first Rocky. You know, people say, well, it's part of the Rocky series. I'm like, no, 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 no. There's Rocky, and then there's this other thing that happened yeah. after Rocky. Yeah. Uh, and that's the way I feel about the what they're now calling, I guess, the third episode or the whatever, the fourth episode of uh, Star Wars. You know, the original yeah. Star Wars. Right. Um, uh, I guess you would have to put it on the White Album because it was from that period, that stripped-down period. And I, I was very proud of the fact that I was able to connect those dots of what the music world was doing in 68, thanks to the band and what Dylan were doing up in Saugerties and the, the basement tapes that had been released, uh, you know, through the bootlegs. And then, of course, uh, music from Big Pink and uh, John Wesley Harding that was released in late 67. And, um, you know, Simon and Garfunkel's bookends. I talk a lot about these these records. Stripped down, you know, no more psychedelia, no more background tracks or strings or anything. Let's get right to it. Even though there is strings and uh, and uh, horns and stuff at the end of Hey Jude, but you know what I mean, and um, so I think it would have to fit there. I I I really I'm at I'm at a loss because you really can't shoehorn this. I think it is so epic and and so of its own. I don't think it would have to end an album, right? It would right. have to end an album. Yeah. So do you move Good Night out, which is interesting because Good Night is. A ballad or a, a um a lullaby that John Lennon wrote for his son Julian because he felt guilty about leaving he, he and Cynthia and going off with Yoko and that's where we get Hey Jules which becomes Hey Jude so yeah. maybe the last track on the White Album what okay. do you think that's a fair fair spot um I don't know I don't know I I just ask the questions <laughs> no I think uh, I think sonically. I think it might be epic enough to put on Abbey Road if they waited if they had waited and and like you said it was it might not have had the same impact had it not been released in 1968. Um, People always say I, and I I write about revolution in the book because it's the you know it's the great yin to the yang of Hey Jude. Right. John being kind of a wise ass there, kind of putting his toes in re- in revolution, but not really count me in, count me out. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you know, you better be careful who you wish for, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's a raucous song on the other side of this ballad for all intents and purposes. But to me, the B-side, the AA, is Don't Let Me Down. That's John's Hey Jude. Hey, I'm going to make myself vulnerable please don't hurt me. Right. Because that's how John approached songwriting. You go all the way back in his canon. His songs about vulnerability are, oh, please don't hurt me, whether it's Girl or Norwegian Wood or um, even in my life, there's these moments of like, oh, I'm really, this is, 
not my safe place. Yeah. Where Paul felt okay there. Um, so I think when I hear and and when I hear the harmony that John does with Paul and Hey Jude, and then I the harmonies that they do together on Don't Let Me Down, it just reminds me of both of them talking to their significant others, two women that they will meet within months of each other, that they will marry within a week of each other, that they will live with until Linda's death at 58 in 1998, and of course John's murder in 1980, and the line, you have found her, now go and get her, and John telling Paul, hey, this song's about me, thanks. (laughs) Thanks for understanding. So, and don't let me down is the same thing, and Paul's like, yeah, yeah, I'm finally giving myself over to Linda, you're finally giving yourself over to a woman, because, you know, I think John definitely loves Cynthia, but he had to marry her, because she got pregnant, and that's what you did then. They were 20, 21 years old, so, um, you know, they're communicating with each other in song, these old friends from from their teenage years that lost their moms and were longing for that woman to complete them. And they found them, and they wrote songs about them. And it gives me the chills even just to say that now. What is it about the Beatles and the song Hey Jude specifically that's always going to be relevant no matter what year it is? It's a damn good song, Jack. It's it's, it's one of the, it's just perfectly structured, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Koch from NC State University, Walter Everett, the great musicologist uh, who who gave me his time, who wrote two great books about the Beatles and songs. And many others talk about just the structure of the song, how it harkens back to the great American songbook, back to your Cole Porters, your Gershwins, how it possesses that ability to tell a story, but don't, don't bore us with the words. Get in and get out. You know, use metaphor and sim, a simile. You know, the movement you need is on your shoulder. The great inner rhymes you talked about, colder. And um, and then it breaks in two. And the chorus, which we never really get, everybody talks about the bridge and how gorgeous that is structurally, how beautiful uh, Paul sings it. And then the Beatles being the Beatles, just playing together and loving it. That outro, they're just loving it, man. Yeah. And you can't stop them, as I said. So I think it's timeless in that way. But I can't remember who said it. But please read my book because there's so many smart people in it. And I, I always forget in these interviews to um, to give them props. But someone said, hey, you're going to be okay. There's never a bad time to hear that. It's not like, you know, pull yourself by your bootstraps. What's the matter with you? It's not, it's not shaming you by giving you a pep talk. It's saying, no, you're going to be fine. You're not alone here. But if you need to do this, hey, Jude, you'll do. You got this. You don't need a lot of fancy platitudes. You don't need to read a self-help book. You don't need medication sometimes. You won't need religion. I mean, obviously, people do need these things, and they do help. But it is nice to hear that you have the ability to make that first step, to accept love, to get over tough times, whether it be divorce or or riots in the streets, assassinations, or war. You have the ability. Um, I quote Gandhi in here as, be the change that you want to see made. And that's what Paul's saying in his beautiful little ballad. And I think it's a lasting, lasting message. It's a great Beatles song. It's a great Paul song. And, And it's just a great song for all of us to just enjoy, even if you get nothing that I'm talking about, or we're both kind of deconstructing here. It's just fun to sing, right. and it never gets to, I just saw Paul a couple weeks ago, you know, and he just brought the house down with it, you know, and he ended the show with it. 
And I just looked at everybody on the row and I said, well, I don't know what the hell he's going to do now, but I don't know how you follow that. Right. But of course he did. He did because he's <laughs> Paul. But yeah, it's just so great. So James, what have you been up to recently after the book's release? I'm talking to you. That's what I'm doing right <laughs> now. Um, well, I'm doing a great book tour. I've been to a few bookstores already. I'm doing a few more in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, up in Plattsburgh, New York. I'm going to Beetlefest in Chicago in August. I'm going to speak at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in October. There's a few other book things I've got uh, out there because, you know, it's still post-COVID, so a lot of events are happening slowly. So a lot of bookstores say, well, when we get this up and running, we'll have you come in. And I said, I'll do it next year if I have to. I, I, w- I want to talk to as many people as possible. It's a lot of fun. Doing a lot of podcasts and media stuff, including this one. And uh, and uh, I started working on a new project. Uh, I'm still working with Adam on his book, but he's you know he's uh, on our book, I should say, because we, we have a partnership agreement. But he's he's doing a lot of stuff with that. He's in Europe now. He's coming back then. Uh, and then Colin Crows goes to Europe for a tour. They're doing some dates in America this summer too. But uh, but I do have a new project. I'm very excited about it. I'm in that that kind of ooh, this is fun. It could be anything now. Right. But I can't tell you about it only because I need. A certain amount of people, specific people, to say yes and sit with me and talk to tell gotcha. their story. And if they go, no, I'm not in the mood, or can we do it next year? I don't want to blab it out and then it not come out. Right. So, but I'm very excited about that. I'm hoping Backbeat publishes it. They seem excited about the idea. And as much as I love talking to you and everybody and getting out there because writing is so isolating and you know you it takes two or three years for a book to come out. Even though I wrote this book in a year, this was my quarantine book, Jack. I started this book on April like the first week of April, 2020. And I finished it the first week of April, 2021, one year. Wow. Bang. Wow. And, uh, I'm never doing that again. It's crazy. Cause I had so much time. I was home all the time. No weekends, no Friday night, you know, you know, going, doing stuff. So, um, this one will take a little longer. So a book takes anywhere between two or three years and about a year to come out, you know, with, with the, you know, getting the rights to the lyrics and the, 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 the quotes and the, uh, the cover and the photographs. So you gotta, again, you have to really love the subject. So, I'm looking forward to getting back and being a writer again and not a promo guy. Right. Any interests in circling back to the Beatles, another Beatles song? Uh, I, I wouldn't. I'll leave it to up to hopefully I inspire other people and get their takes. I'm very excited about that. Uh, if people do have – or, you know, they're, they're doing a documentary about, um, about Hallelujah and that great song. Yes. And um, – my my friend Alan Light, the author, wrote a book about Hallelujah called uh, "The Broken and the Lonely," one of the ten that are about one song, but the Leonard Cohen song. So maybe somebody will pick this up and do a doc about Hey Jude. Um, but uh, if if you're out there listening, but um, I, I don't think so. I I try to go into different directions uh, when I write, just to get out of the headspace of that thing. And I think I've. I think I've said everything I want to say about what the Beatles meant to me, what they meant to a generation and what this song meant. And I really do. This is one of my favorite songs of all time. I can't, for me personally, I couldn't top it, but I would run right out and buy a song that someone, you know, a book someone wrote about yesterday or a day in the life or imagine or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Where can people find your book? Everywhere that good books are sold, as they say, (laughs) it's on Amazon. Um, It's uh, Barnes and Noble, I, I always support, go to your independent bookstores. You could order it there if it's not already there. Uh, libraries, it's there if, you're, if that's your thing. It's on ebook, And you could also order my book from jamescampion.com. That's my website. Uh, if you do and you live in the continental U.S. 
A, I know you have listeners all over the place because if you have that many people following you on Twitter, I'm sure people are going to be listening to this podcast. If you are in Europe, please go to the Amazon in Europe or other places because it's just so much money to mail it. But I do mail books free. So if you buy it from me, I will sign it and sign it up to your dad or your mom or your brother or your friend or whoever or to you. And, uh, and I'll mail it to you for nothing. And um, so, yeah, that's all the places. It's Thank you for asking that it's available. It's doing really well. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I'm really, really taken aback and moved. People writing me and saying, I cried and laughed in the first 12 pages, so nice job. Or I just learned, so somebody just tweeted yesterday, I've li- I was this day years old before I knew that Linda and Yoko grew up in the same town in Westchester as Scarsdale and both went to the same uh, college for a few weeks. Wow. And I was so glad to put that tidbit in there and yeah. that somebody would learn. And my cousin just wrote me the other day and she was like, I'm learning so much. And I gave her Rob Sheffield's Dreaming the Beatles, which is one of the greatest books ever written about anything. Yeah. And she just finished reading it. I'm like, you didn't. If Rob didn't cover it and it's in my book, then I'm really a hero somehow. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, I'm very taken aback by the response to this book. Very moved and very pleased. As an author, that's all you can ask for, that people are moved. And, and Jack, seriously, man, thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for liking the book. You're such a big Beatle fan. You're from a totally different generation. I hope it did move you. Is, did you have one last question for me, if I may? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Do you did you have a, spe, uh, a a part of the book that you liked more than the others? What was the part that made you kind of smile? You were like, yeah, your your Beatle fandom came out. Well, I gotta say, there's two moments. Uh, the first one was when they were debating on whether to put a seven minute song out as a single, and John was kind of just like, if it's the Beatles, they're gonna listen, and that you know he was defending Paul, which is really cool during a period where they weren't getting along as well as they used to get along, and. My the second part is just yeah. how uh, you describe the turmoil in the world and the turmoil in the group and how this song kind of brought everything that they learned from India, you know, transcendental med- meditation to breathe, let it out and let it in and orientate yourself again and uh, how it how it serves a purpose within the Beatles and without the Beatles. Yes, well said. Can you put that in the Amazon review? <laughs> absolutely no absolutely no that's a great that's a great review i was gonna say you just reminded me i do want to end with this if i may yeah um you know it's a love song it's a love song about loving yourself if you're julian and you're going through you're five years old and you're going through your parents are going through a divorce or a breakup your family's breaking up it's a love song between two friends who had gone through so much together john and paul It's a love song for their loves, the women that would complete them, the women that they would take out on the road to create their art. As one biographer said, the fact that Paul and John found these women and then took them out and put them in their music shows you how much intimacy their relationship was. If I have to, what did John say? I'm pretty cool because I found Paul and Yoko. Yeah. Give me credit for that. You know, (laughs) that's kind of cool that he said that, you know, and it's a love song for Beatles fans, it's a love song for the Beatles. It's a love song for their generation. And it's a love song that 55 years, how the hell is it? 54 years later still kicks our ass. Yeah. It does. And I hope you think of the book and Paul and our discussion when you go see Paul and he's singing those na-na's. And I want you to join in and be there with everybody else because it is a, as you know, if you saw him 10 years ago, it is a chill-inducing moment, isn't it? Yeah. 
No, it's I'm I'm totally looking forward to to jumping in that tidal wave of 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 chorus in in That's the great. in a stadium. Oh my gosh, I can't wait for that. And I'm totally going to be thinking about this book and and of your words Thanks, and I'm I'm super excited to see it and to spread this book um, with all my friends and family. And I will definitely be leaving a review about it as well. And I and I, and I implore everybody who really likes the book cuz that really helps. When I buy a book um I like to read what readers you know, I, I love getting good reviews and I've had some good ones. I'm still waiting for more to come in. I'm crossing my fingers. But the most important thing for me is that people who actually read the book, Soup to Nuts, who are fans of the subject, tell me, you're going to like this book. If you like this, you're going to like this. And this is why. I, I think that's very important for readers. I've often felt this way. I have this discussion with my wife all the time. What is art? I feel art is a two-way street. And I write to be read. All all editors will say, you got to fix this, tweak that. Your reader's not going to get, what do you mean here? Make it clear. You want the, you want to admit emotion, whether you're looking at a painting, listening to a song, watching a play, watching a concert, reading a poem. You want to feel something, right. rage, horror, joy, love, lust, whatever the hell they're trying to do, you want to get it out of them. So to hear readers respond that way, that makes it more, that to me is the greatest gift. That's the great gift. The, the research, the interviews, and then the people going, yeah, yeah, this is what I got out of this. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah, man. So thank you. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, James, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was, it was truly refreshing. It was enlightening. And uh, everybody, go check this book out ASAP. Make it your summer reading. Thank you, Jack. Appreciate it. Peace. Junctures from Liverpool, England. The Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. That brings a close to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. Thank you, James, for coming on. Thank you for writing this book. Everyone, it's called Take a Sad Song, The Emotional Currency of Hey Jude. Like James said, this book is available everywhere good books are sold. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore. Uh, go get this book. You should all check it out. Follow us on Twitter at BeatlesEarth. Follow us on Instagram under the same name. Check out our website, BeatlesEarth.com. If you like the episode, subscribe, and we'll see you next week.